It's important to get to the bottom of what role money plays in your life if you, if you want to change the way you're dealing with money. If you don't want to change, then it doesn't matter. My vision is, is really that the majority of Canadians are able to get unbiased financial advice without having to deal with a product salesperson that they can trust extremely cost-effectively and, in fact, get to a point where they're actually dynamically doing their own planning. Just the way we book our own trips and travel, that's the way planning's going to be. I think that the more knowledgeable and empowered a client is, the better decisions that they will make. And at the end of the day, then they will be in a stronger financial position, and isn't that what we are here to help them do? This is the Personal Finance Show. Hi, I'm Bo Humphreys, and this is the Personal Finance Show. Rona Bierenbaum wants you to be financially successful. Rona started out in the financial services industry at a time when sales commissions were huge and the focus was on making money for yourself and not necessarily your clients. Rona decided that this was all wrong and in the year 2000 she founded Caring for Clients, Toronto's best financial planning firm. At Caring for Clients, Rona and her team do something called integrative financial planning. Sometimes referred to as holistic planning, it means looking at your whole financial picture. I think this testimonial from CaringForClients.com says it best. Rona and the team at Caring for Clients helped us put together a plan that is far beyond financial advice. Their unique holistic approach had us explore all aspects of our life to ensure that we had all the necessary support in place for our future. Over the years, Rona realized that paying for a full financial plan from Caring for Clients wasn't always in the financial best interest of prospective clients. So with the help of new technology, she recently created Vivaplan.com, where you can still get a great financial plan, but for a fraction of the price of a full-blown Caring for Clients plan. I visited Rona at her office in downtown Toronto, where she shared her personal finance story. So I remember my allowance and collecting it, and it really was all, for me, it was all about saving and hoarding and collecting. Now why? I always ask this because how do we build, how do we know to save and hoard? Like what tells us to do that? Was it an influence, your parents or? I don't think so because my sister spent every penny she got. Yeah. And we were getting allowance at the same time. And we were each given a a piggy bank. It was a little white porcelain piggy bank. And I would take my allowance, which when I first started getting it was 10 cents. And I would drop it in the piggy bank, and it would make this awesome sound. (laughs) Clink. You like the sound. I liked the sound. Interesting. I liked the sound. And then it's interesting because the more coins I put in, the sound would change. The less of a clink. Or a different clink. It was a different clink. And... but a better clink. <laughs> <laughs> so you, yeah, you, well, but that meant that to you. I knew More that associated, that. <laughs> more money. Yes. Now, hmm. so what's interesting is, is how, what I also learned early on, I think, about money, is that money was power. Hmm. In that, you know, use your power wisely. Sure. You? Because I discovered that 
by accumulating money, it meant that eventually I could actually buy something with it. Whatever you want. Well, actually, I didn't do not. that. <laughs> because, because my sister would spend all her money. Yes. Yes, I could buy myself something, and then she'd be envious because she couldn't because she'd spent it on a chocolate bar every weekend, right? Some kind of power, so, but you didn't want that kind of power over so her? What, but what, what I would do, because I loved my sister, and I was the little, I was the little younger sister, okay. so I was, always wanted her attention, and I wanted her love, and I wanted <laughs> to be important, and yeah. when we would walk to school... She'd be with her friend, and she'd make me walk three steps behind, so it would look like I really wasn't connected to her <laughs> You're at all. The outcast, right? So, being the little sister, I always wanted to win her affection. So, when I would accumulate money, I would buy her things. Oh wow! Yeah, what a thing to so, do! So, I would buy her things, which of course would make her, you know, happy to have received something, but then at the same time. <laughs> beholden in a way you yes. know it was like the reciprocity principle very early yeah. on so so she was appreciative but annoyed at the same time yeah. because then she couldn't reciprocate yeah because right? she spent all her money on her that's right hmm. and so that was a pattern for a long time that's wow. not to say that I wouldn't from time to time treat myself go to the corner store and get myself one of those grape lolas that, and mm. and that would be so sugary it would make you choke when yeah, you, when, sure. you, when you ate, had it but aside from that I liked to accumulate and then I liked to spend it on other people that's, that's a, always kind of been my motive that's really that. nice yeah and you're, are you saying you still do that I actually did that up until and I still do like I, I'm I'm a giver by nature yeah. in all aspects of my mm. life. My, my second husband, who's since passed away, he was much more of a bon vivant than, than okay. I was. So yeah. I was all about accumulating and, and saving for the future and, um, and, and not spending frivolously yeah. or on things that you could get less expensively. And he, he was the opposite. He just loved to just always get the best and live life to the fullest and it's not that he didn't save for the future he did but it was he did it both was, he did yeah. both and that was hard for me so over time though he wore me down <laughs> and, they always win don't they the spenders well you know and i and i started to experience what spending a little bit more freely felt like hmm. And so what did I release the purse strings on? Travel with him. Yeah, experiences. Experiences. Yes. And so I, I started to really understand how great it felt to relax a little bit, spend on something that I didn't really need. It wasn't, you know, food and shelter, but boy, it was life-enhancing for sure. Yeah. So I, I live a much more balanced life now which I think is healthier. But that took a while to get it's to. It's taken my whole life. You know, but yeah. I think it, I'm so glad that actually I got that perspective because, because in the work that I do, my ability to help people is much better now that I have a more balanced perspective personally. Well-rounded, yeah. Yeah, much more well-rounded. A respect for what money can do and, and the whole concept of life is an address rehearsal and all of that. So enjoy the here and now, but respect the future. Would the you have time. approached a client differently, say, before this experience with, uh, with your uh, husband? Uh, say, like, oh, you should cut down on your spending uh, mm -hmm. if they came to you like that? Well, not really. It's actually not those people, I think, oh, okay. um, I would have advised differently 
because people that I, I've never felt that there's anything wrong with spending a lot if you can if you can afford afford it. it. And, and certainly, I think people that spend frivolously and aren't saving enough for the future, they kind of know that. No. So having that, you know, we got to, you know, temper things a little bit conversation is pretty to be expected. What, what, where it's come in more handy is with people that would have been me or I would have been them, which is to say they, they don't know how to spend they're mm. afraid to spend. I see. Okay. So what I do with them is I say, I was you. Yes. I was absolutely. you. And so I understand where you're coming from. Yeah. And then I share my story mm-hmm. and how I've managed to um, be a little bit more flexible and what it's added to my life mm-hmm. without compromising my security down the road. Yes. So, yeah, because yeah. oversaving can be an issue, right? It can be. Oversaving can limit your life it can you know it could even be so bad as not visiting your children if they don't live near you very mm. often because you don't want to spend money on a plane ticket i mean you can really it yeah. can really get in the way of relationships it can it can create stress in terms of family dynamics yeah especially if the unwillingness to spend is fear based and not based in reality right that's right mm. where does this fear based uh, reality come from where does like the, this is scarcity right like mm-hmm. we're never going to we're not going to have enough what if we run out like is it where you come from your background say like your history is that is that probably a big part of it i think that's probably the majority uh, the, those are the most obvious ones yeah, to pin so. down on. Yeah. So my mother, for example, is your, your typical case in that regard. She grew up extremely poor, mm-hmm. you know, family of, with four children, all sleeping in the same bed, moved yeah. 16 times in 18 years, that whole story, lots of unemployment, lots of is there going to be food on the table, that kind of stuff. Yeah. So she, that's how she grew up. And then, of course, she met my father, a very stable engineer. And everything, and they bought a house and never moved in 54 years. Yeah. But nonetheless, and in spite of the fact that I'm their financial advisor, yeah. she still worries <laughs> about running out of money and is still very tight with purse strings. Even and, though you can probably provide oh, her with a projection that yeah. says you're going to be fine oh, yeah. for uh, probably 50 yeah. more years It's a good or thing something. I don't take it personally that she still doesn't believe <laughs> yeah. it. And that's how you know that it's really not rational. Even, it's all, with the evidence in front of you. The evidence is right there. And, and it's, it's sad, kind of, in a way, because life will pass you by otherwise. So... So I think some of it is upbringing, for sure. Mm-hmm. I think that's got to be... Those are the obvious ones. The less obvious ones, I don't even think the individual might even know mm. why. As I say, money is power. It's also control. Okay. So, you know, we're, what I've seen is I've seen relationships where, you know, especially in an old-fashioned dynamic where the husband earned the money, the, the, the woman raised the family, and so... Or in, and it can go either way these days. But essentially, whoever wasn't earning the money had to kind of ask for an allowance, as it were, mm. in order to spend. Oh, yeah. Okay, so, so sometimes uh, what I have seen is that the earning spouse says that we can't spend it because they really just want to control how the money is being spent. Yeah. So I think there's fear, there's power and control, there's all oh. sorts of things. So it's important to get to the bottom of what role money plays in your life if you if you want to change the way you're dealing with money if you don't want to change then it doesn't matter would people come to you looking to change i feel like you can't change someone unless they're ready 
Mm -hmm. <laughs> that or help them mm -hmm. change because you can't yeah you literally can't change anyone mm -hmm. <laughs> they have to be yeah. able to change themselves but they need your help is that what you get people coming in do you get some people like that looking to most of them not no yeah but we get there anyway yeah so you're able to use their their whatever their motivation is to come in we want to get it in order we want to have a clear picture or whatever it is we want to make sure we're doing everything the right way and then you're able to open the conversation with them? Sometimes it's as simple as asking the question, what's getting in the way of sure. you doing that? Or what's no one's the ever obstacle? asked them. Yeah. yeah, what's the obstacle? Yeah. They know there are obstacles and sometimes it's just stopping and thinking for a minute, well, what is it? And, yeah. and waiting and then just sitting and being quiet. Yeah, yes, that's a really good advice. <laughs> I need to do that more. So <laughs> let's go back to you. Now, obviously, you're, you're quite educated in the, in the language of finance right now and, and, and relationships, because that's what it's all about, right? And pe people's relationships with money. Were you interested in it before? So you went to, I'm assuming you went to school for this? I did not go to school oh, for this. Oh, there you go. So uh, I had to go to university from the time I was three or four, yes, I started getting an allowance, and I was also told at the same time that I would be going to university. Okay. I do like to drill down on that because... Okay. Did you also want to at that point? Or well, did you I've, just I've know always you enjoyed had to? school. Yeah, okay. So that the idea that this was something that was going to happen didn't bother me. Okay. I was excited by the prospect. My sister, on the other hand, no, okay. there's a theme running, the sure. difference between my sister Absolutely. and I. Absolutely, siblings. I love you, Natalie. <laughs> anyway, um, so she was not of that mind, and she would love to have not gone to university. Yes. But she did, and my dad actually tutored her all the way through mm, okay. and, and she's glad that she did so I always wanted to go because I love to learn I've always been a kind of a sponge for for learning yeah but again not I didn't know what I wanted to do what I wanted to be when I grew up at whatever age I was uh, who 17 who really 16. Does? some people are lucky enough I guess but do they really yeah I remember at that age saying to my mom God, I wish I... There are some kids that they just know they want to be a doctor or they want to be a lawyer. Oh, that would be so great if I just knew, <laughs> yeah. you know? But, yeah, but, but maybe they are a doctor for 10 years and then realize, I want to do something else, but feel trapped. Oh, right? entirely. So th there could be that, too. I think we need to take our time, but also need to open to change and open to, to differences. I feel like this maybe happened to you. What did you, uh, what did you take then? So I ended up uh, starting in the psychology program. Okay. Because one thing I yes. always knew is how much of an interest I had in people. Yes. Right. So I, lo I loved the human mind. I liked people. I, and I just intuitively liked helping people. So I thought, well, there's your obvious route to helping mm. people. So I started in the psychology program. And first year for me was hard uh, for two reasons. For one, the program itself, although most of what you learn in first year is quite foundational, and it, you know, but a lot of it was sociology and psychology and all that stuff. Um, but it was also hard because uh, I, I, I just didn't want to be with people my age. Mm. In other words, I, the, the whole social scene was not a I fit see. for me. It wasn't okay. in high school, and it didn't get any easier in I university. See. I just wanted to go and learn yeah. and not have to, <laughs> uh, I don't know, Socialize. be that age. Yeah. yeah. No, it's, yeah. it's really, you know, some people look at 
there's two ways to look at school. It's a place to go and learn, and it's a place to go and learn about life. Right. And, you know, hopefully you can do a little bit of both mm-hmm. uh, and not ha- completely one or completely the other because the complete learning means you, like yourself, had a terrible time or not a terrible, but it wasn't as enjoyable mm-hmm. as it would have been. And then if you do the opposite, well, then you flunk out or you don't learn anything and it was a waste of money. I found you, another way. Yeah, okay, so what did you do? So what I did was I decided in my mind that I wanted to uh, leave full-time study okay. and start working. I just wanted okay. to get out into the work world and study at night and go to the and do the adult night program. I'm putting your, your uh, dad in my head right now and he's saying, That conversation no. was not good. <laughs> No way. And that's what he said. And Hmm. so I said, uh, way. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I think he was was afraid that I just wouldn't finish. Sure. So here's power of money again, money and power. He said to me, all right, Rona, if that's really what you want to do, you can pay for your education. Okay. And you said... You have a deal. You have a deal. Did you have a plan at the at that point, or did you have money? No, but I had to get. I had to get. You, well, I had. I had whatever I'd some. saved from because I'd been working summers part time since I was like fifteen years old. Yeah, we I was, skipped over that. Yeah, I skipped uh, the Baskin school, but, Robbins, yeah. and you know, I did all retail, those kind of, all the stuff, all that stuff, all the building your your people skills, which yes. then maybe made you want to do the psychology. You had it to figure be. it out somehow. That Let you me were tell good you a quick funny story sure, about about my first job at yes. Baskin Robbins. I lasted two weeks. Okay, right? <laughs> and I lasted two weeks because uh, they did the a cursory amount of training. And there I am, and I'm scooping ice cream, and I'm scooping scoops. And the owner would pop in every once in a while, and he saw me serving customers and said, oh, no, 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 you're making the scoops way too big. And he says, let me show you. You have to make them this big and weigh them. And here's the weight, and this oh. is what I expect. So he showed me what the weight was for one scoop, and then, and then I'd put it on a cone. I couldn't possibly serve a scoop that small they would have laughed at you or or said this is it well yeah and they did they did so while he was there okay i had to serve like that and so i would serve and people would kind of look at this the cone and then look at me and say (laughs) you're like you got to be kidding to offend you i know (laughs) and so thankfully you know, he wasn't there all the time, but I knew I was doing something wrong. Like, I, I, I knew I was, I was giving more ice cream than I was supposed to, and yeah. I thought, well, maybe he's going to walk in and see me, and the ice cream police will come. I don't know. You I were just a felt, nervous wreck. I was, I was so stressful. <laughs> so I said, this is not for me. No. <laughs> Well, look, you know, looking over your shoulder, even like you know, po- the possibility of that is just uh, no way to work. And it just felt wrong. It just felt what wrong. What you were doing, too. The People, they were not getting good value for I their money. I feel like money. he missed the point of, of a business. It's, uh, you know, I doubt that little bit of ice cream was going to kill him on the inventory cost. So. I really... And look at the employee he left. Yeah. He let go <laughs> or lost, I should right? say. So I had saved up money from all of the jobs I'd had and whatnot. So I had a little bit there so I could pay, I remember, my first uh, semester's tuition. Okay. And the deal that my dad made, he wasn't completely harsh. He said that he would pay for my books. Okay. And we all know how expensive books are. Yeah, they can be, yeah. And he let me use the car to get to and from class because class was from 7 till 10 at night. And so you were going to school. Where, where did you grow up? Uh, in Toronto. Right. So I went to York University. Okay, so you, yeah. you were near there or like close well, enough yeah, to drive? Well, yeah, it was uh, you know, a half an hour drive, yeah. 40 minutes. 
40 minutes. This drive. is another good uh, frugality uh, point is, is live at home if you oh, can. Oh, yeah. Well, it was never presented as an option that I would do otherwise. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I never yeah. discovered that it was an option. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah, so he said, here, I'll let you take the car. So, anyway, so I needed to find a job. And uh, I did a couple of things administratively here, there. And then in, in my second year or third year, because I, what I was doing was I was doing essentially two or three classes a semester at night, okay. year round. So, summer through oh, summer really? and all of that. Okay. So, in the end, it took me six years to do the four year degree. And working in the day. And working yeah, in the okay. day. So what I did is, in the, at the same time, when I switched to nighttime, I decided I wanted to do a different program. And uh, I was dating this terrible guy at the time, but the good thing he did was suggest that I try Business 101. Because oh. he was in the accounting program. Yeah, and he okay. thought, well, maybe you'd like this. Yeah. Right? So I did Business 101. It was like, oh, the birds were singing. All of a sudden, <laughs> I said, like, well, this is interesting. Would it take you through the, all of the parts of the business? Like a... Yeah, I don't like remember exactly, but yeah, it was yeah. kind of touching on like business. Marketing, and HR operations, all that, all that stuff. stuff, and accounting, of course, all finance. All of that. It was so just a general kind of did thing. Did you like all of it, or did oh, you yeah. focus on one I just bit? remember just, yeah, loving all yeah, of it, yeah. and just thinking, okay, if I could do more of this kind of stuff, okay. then that would be really great. So I switched. I switched programs from psychology to business. Do you remember the motivation? You just weren't into the psychology No, anymore? I was just, yeah. Was it too something? It was too theoretical for okay. me. Okay, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they weren't, because uh, yeah, you, you wanted to work. Yeah. And, and it's funny, learning about business, or especially how a business runs, it does feel like you're actually learning about it and not just talking about what, you know, Immanuel Kant said or, you know, whatever. Exactly. <laughs> you know, that kind of stuff. Exactly. And... Although it's a good thing I learned Maslow's hierarchy of needs because I knew to use that's it all the time. That's important too. Yeah, it does. It comes up in business all, all the, the time. time in personal finance specifically, yes. right? Yes. And so you're in business. You just took one business 101, mm-hmm. but yeah, then I just switched, and I and I had to choose what my major was going to be, so I chose marketing. Okay. Because that sounded like human behavior. Okay. Yeah. So it was kind of the intersection of business and and yeah. human psychology. Uh, and then I needed, I, I wanted a more full-time job, so I ended up um, applying. A friend of mine in class worked at a credit union in marketing, okay. and he said, maybe they need some tellers. So I went and I got a job as a teller, and that was the beginning of my financial services career, and I've been in financial services ever since. Wow, okay, yeah. so just almost randomly starting as, yep. a, as a bank teller. Yeah, because it, oh. it was either going to be, I thought I was going to be, I don't know, marketing uh, pampers for Procter & Gamble. And sure. That was going to be the path. Which you might have. Yeah. So, Wait, but, yeah. <laughs> but spoiler, you didn't. And <laughs> the teller job, was that just during school then, or did you continue I continued, and I ended up uh, working my way up through that organization over five years. Ultimately, I ended up running a couple of branches. Okay. Yeah, so, so I what, did everything. So, brand, like, teller to what's an intermediate teller before to, brand, uh, branch cash manager? Teller to super. I managed the cash okay. team, all the tellers. Yeah. And then I was a deposit advisor, and then a loans officer, then okay. an assistant branch manager, and then a branch manager. Wow. Yeah. Is it tough being a, a man, branch manager of a bank? Well, it was a credit union, which is... It's different? It, it, well, it was back then. I'd like to think it still is now. Yeah? Uh, what, what are the, do you have some key, like, just quick uh, differences? Well, I would just say, they're, you know, the customers are called members. They're yeah, not okay. called clients or yeah. customers. Um, and it, it's not quite the same 
profit-driven model. I mean, uh, there yeah. has to be a like the the financials have to be there, and there needs to be growth, and it needs to be a sustainable business. But generally, they're not publicly traded companies okay. with shareholders to report to, uh, and so it's a it, no. that leads to different kinds of behavior for sure. Yeah, yeah, and a different focus. I've never really looked into that. So, like executives and stuff like that, are probably still well compensated, but maybe not as crazy as the banks. Oh, not even yeah, yeah, okay. remotely. Not yeah. even remotely. Oh, think about credit unions. Would you, would you still recommend somebody if they're thinking of a bank versus credit union? What would you What would you say if somebody was trying to make that decision? In terms of where to work? No, where where to put their money at this point? Like to start, they're starting out as like I just either came to Canada or I wanted to set up something for my kids. I don't have a bank and I don't care. Is there a benefit? Like, well, what I would say is I'm putting you on the spot. No, I I <laughs> want to answer that properly. It, there's two things that are important. One is what's going to be the best and most cost-effective and convenient product. Mm, and then yeah. what's going to work best for that individual either in terms of convenience, accessibility, etc. Banks, the traditional banks are not high on my list. Like they're not the ones that kind of jump up sure. for me. Okay. Okay. Uh, a lot of the virtual banks are and, and I would say credit yeah. unions as well. But the thing with a virtual bank is you still kind of need that traditional bank set up to even link to some of these uh, okay, online so banks. So, but like the credit unions are, you can do that independently. Yes. But yeah, I mean, and uh, you know, like Tangerine, for example, it's, mm -hmm. it's uh, independent. I, that, that's my only bank. And it's, I mean, even though it's owned by Scotiabank, mm -hmm. um, I still feel like they kept the old values yeah. of ING Direct, which yeah. is where, where I started. And so I still think that they're, they're a good choice. But I do like what you said about the values of, of credit unions and, and how they're not completely profit-driven. Mm -hmm. And I can, I can see that being a big thing for somebody. And the other thing is many credit unions, are, their membership is built around some commonality. Mm, okay. So like teachers or... Teachers yeah. or the credit union I worked for originally was a credit union that was just for Ontario Hydro employees. Okay. It has since become Meridian. Okay, yeah. <laughs> okay, but back then it was the, the membership was exclusively Ontario Hydro employees. Hmm. So what that meant is that the staff really understood really everything about what it was like to be part of that organization. We understood the compensation, we understood their benefits, we understood that we better staff up on Thursdays because they were paid every Thursday. Okay, you know, I see. You know, and, and, so, and then there's also cultural organizations, like there's the Ukrainian Credit That's Union. That's right, in Blue West Village, where right. I lived there for a couple of years. Yeah, yeah. so it can be, there can be a community feel. That, that, that makes more sense, yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the, the biggest one I'm aware of, not here, but um, in Ontario that I know of, just because they were able to name a, an arena mm. uh, is the Windsor Family Credit Union WFCU. I, it's, it's huge. I mean, if you can sponsor an arena, you got to. That's, gotta, pretty, that's good. A pretty good, right? Mm -hmm. And so I, like, I didn't think about what that meant. I just thought that I'm as another local bank, but I guess maybe they're more specialized in people in the Windsor area, or maybe there's even other uh, qualifications for membership. I don't know that. I would think so. And but, where sometimes these things all of a sudden become really meaningful is let's say there's a credit union in a, in a small community mm -hmm. and that small community has one or two primary employers and let's say there's a, a plant shutdown. If I was running a credit union that catered to a group that was experiencing, say, a crisis yeah. that would have financial implications, then really what that organization should be doing is finding a way to step up and support their membership and find ways, creative ways, both in terms of 
the financing help they might need, bringing people together and figuring out how you can have a, a job fair or whatever the case may be. But whatever is common about that group of members allows, I guess, you as a service organization, and I see credit unions as service organizations. I Actually, I see every business should be a service organization be, because the, their customers are people. Yeah, that's right. But I, I just think when you have that a little bit of uh, universality, it means that you can actually do something really special and meaningful for everyone. You know, I just got this picture of Jimmy Stewart and, and It's a Wonderful He's Life. Right. <laughs> like, are, are credit unions the closest thing we have to the old savings and loan that uh, they used to run? Yeah, it could be. Right? It could be. And I think that it would be even more so if there was a little bit more collaboration. Mm. And I think that part of the reason maybe that there isn't, and, and I've been outside of that world for a while, sure. so... I'm probably going to get this wrong, but it's still, there's been a lot of provincial distinctions, okay. provincial associations, et cetera, et cetera. And so, yeah. and that's not unique to that industry nationally. There's all sorts of barriers provincially that mm. I think interfere with the ability to collaborate and really kind of have more of a movement and more philosophy that, mm-hmm. that could be, I don't know, easier to roll out and communicate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you're not with the credit union anymore, as you, as you no. said. So. Well, you left there after you said five years. Mm-hmm. So where did you go next? So I decided that I wanted to be more entrepreneurial and I wanted to work for myself. Well, you got your degree. I did, but I got my degree while I was still at the credit union yeah. and a marketing degree. And then you just stayed to work there. Yeah, because I was enjoying what okay, I was so doing was and your... I was learning and okay, so yeah. on. Yeah. Uh, so I decided that, but what I what I liked most about the, all of the things I did at the credit union was the client-facing work. Mm-hmm. I mean, I loved managing a team and all of that. But what I didn't like was that my primary responsibility as a, as a manager was to actually meet certain metrics, you know, mm. open a certain number of accounts and process Even a certain it, number of Even though it was a credit union, Absolutely. we still had metrics, not probably yeah. as crazy as we're hearing today yeah. as, uh, you yeah. know, open a million credit cards or but, upselling but, to people who don't need stuff. But mm-hmm. you still have, it's, you're trying to make some money. And that's exactly yeah. it. And, and I didn't find that particularly inspiring. Okay, yeah. So I got my, uh, I decided I wanted to go into investment management, uh, really only because I'd asked my father for advice uh, and said, what do you think I should do? And he said, well, you know, my investment advisor seems to really enjoy what she's doing. Mm. And she was one of the few women in the field back then. Okay. And he says, why don't you talk to her? And I did. And she was very encouraging. So I got my securities license, I did my exam, and I joined one of the independents at the time that existed, that was Midland Walwyn. Yeah, and I be- blue chip thinking. Blue chip thinking, yeah. <laughs> So I got in there, I joined their rookie program. I lasted two years before I was um, recruited by Wood Gundy. Okay. And the reason why I moved to Wood Gundy was because I thought that the... Um, Oh, God, the dog-eat-dog, sales-driven culture was unique to Midland Walwyn and oh. not to the industry as a whole. <laughs> but you were proven wrong? Or? Oh, yes. yes, oh, yes. <laughs> and then, of course, I was introduced to the idea of conflicts of interest and proprietary products and incentive for selling in-house products and yeah. all of that, and it just seemed even worse to me. So can you give us a date uh, for this? Yeah, so I was at Midland Walwyn from 96 to 98, and okay. Edward Gundy between 98 and 2000. So yeah, what were the products like at this time? Were they, is it mutual funds only? It was, um, I was using mutual funds. I was building stock and bond portfolios. Okay, you could do custom portfolios yeah, Absolutely. For oh, yeah, okay. yeah. 
And, and were mutual fund funds sort of new in the 90s? In I the forget. late 90s, they were on a real roll. They were new yeah. in the early 90s, I would say. Okay, yeah. And in the late 90s, mutual funds were a cash cow for the industry yeah. because you had, um, as as I would listen to my cohorts in the bullpen, they'd say, oh, yeah, I, got, I had another call with a GIC refugee. It's great. <laughs> She's got a half a million dollars in GICs, and I got her into DSC mutual funds oh, and made a $25,000 commission, and I'm saying, oh, my God, is this, is this the industry I've joined? Yeah, can you talk about that for a sec? So mm-hmm. uh, you would get paid immediately? For, if you sold yeah. a, a deferred sales charge mutual fund, mm-hmm. you'd get a 5% commission immediately. Immediately. Yeah. And on the condition that if they tried to take the money out within seven years, mm-hmm. is that pretty standard? Yeah, with that six they would the have to seven. pay a declining value of mm-hmm. 5% or less, depending on how many years is left. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I've talked about deferred sales charges before, mm-hmm. but I don't know if I've talked to anyone who's actually benefited from them did you did you not i'm not trying to make you a villain or anything (laughs) no no no. because that's how it was at the time yeah so what i would say about that Mm -hmm. is there were a couple of things it it was it was actually the way we were trained yeah so we were actually trained uh to deliver kind of the following message around the DSC model. Because okay. keep in mind, one of the things that it's important to know the history of, of yes, mutual funds uh, is what came before like the DSC yes, model. Yes, what did come okay. before. What came before the DSC model was that there was really only a front-end model. Okay. Okay. So you pay a commission to buy mutual funds. You know how much commission. that was? Yeah. No, how much? 9%. So you pay 9%, what, like out of pocket? The client would be out of pocket. So you invest 100000 wow, okay. 91 gets invested, 9000 9, was the commission to the broker. Well, interesting. Okay. okay. Now, it was tough to sell... <laughs> Canadians weren't on that, all that keen on that kind of pricing. Well, because what were GICs getting them at the time, oh, though? Oh, about wow. Back in the early 90s, they would have been in the 12%, 10, oh. 12% range for sure. Amazing. Because I remember in, uh, in 2001, my mortgage was 10%. My mortgage rate was 10%. And then so they were about, So yeah. GICs must have been 12 or 13, sure. right? And so if someone's getting 12% No, it, GICs would have been 8. Okay, it's if 8. If you're being lending out at 10, yeah, sure. that's right. Sure. But like let's say let's just go with 10% for now because yeah, they were probably sure. at some point. Someone said 18 to me uh, recently. Yeah. Uh, that would have been the 80s. 80s. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> in the 80s. And so yeah, why would they pay a 9% commission to get what potential returns? Could you promise any returns? No. What would people expect? So, okay. Yeah. So just before we get to sure, that, please, go ahead. so then what the mutual fund industry came out with yeah. was they needed another pricing model because that was just an, front, yeah. Yeah, an obstacle, Nobody a two sizable obstacle. Hmm. So they came out with the deferred sales charge model, which is okay. It's it's uh, we're not going to charge the client anything. Yeah. Right. So that eliminates the obstacle for from from the client standpoint. But of course, the broker still wants to get paid. Oh. Now, yeah. you're not going to get paid 9%, but you're going to get paid 5%. Yeah. And so long as the client stays in there for at least six years, they'll never have to pay that commission. So when we went, when I remember I went through my rookie training, it was, okay, this is how you position this with the client. Because the alternative was um, a front-end charge of 2%. It was actually 2% to buy and 2% to sell or 2% for switches. And this is that's on top of the probably 25 MER that was there, uh, right? Yes, yeah. th- that's right. The purchase yeah. and sale commissions would be on top of the MER. Wow, it's so, a different world. So actually yeah. what, what was being presented to the client at the time was, okay, Mr. and Mrs. Client, here is this great investment option, professional portfolio management. 
you have a couple of options. You okay. can purchase yeah. you can purchase it and pay 2% to buy and 2% to sell. Or you can purchase it, not pay anything. All of your money is fully invested in growing. Mm. And if you, so long as you uh, keep it for at least six years, it was six years at the time, in some cases five, six years, you won't ever have to pay that. And by the way, Mr. and Mrs. Klein, you can switch from this fund to that fund within our, within our within the group of funds. And so there's plenty of flexibility. It actually sounds like a good deal, actually. Not, yeah. You know, I, I'm only comparing it to today, but yeah, that At actually, the time, it was better. Now, the mm. piece that was missing. It, it pains me to say this. Yeah. But yeah the piece right. that was missing that most advisors did not communicate at that time. Okay, yeah. And that I always did mm -hmm. was, oh, and by the way. The fund company is going to pay a commission of 5%. Mm, okay. All right? Of which I get a portion, and that's how I'm paid for advising you. Yes. And if you sell within the five, first five or six years, what you have to pay to sell is really my, the commission that fee, I received yeah. up front. Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm determined to give you value for that 5%, but that's the way it works, and, here, and those are your options. What would you prefer? I think okay. I did a comparison uh, in a blog post to a car rental. I think it was very mm -hmm. loose. Like if you brought the car back early, you'd have to pay more. <laughs> that kind of thing. It, it, it doesn't make sense in, in anything else but compared to what was previously there. And, I, and in a way, I wish I, I would have done more research into where it was before. Because comparing that to today, of course, where everyone's giving everything it away, yeah. it really does. Mm -hmm. And... and um, but you're right. The only bad part about any of this is is if the lack of disclosure, if there was yeah. any. Yeah. Otherwise, it was just, hey, if it's all up front, this mm -hmm. is what you're paying for, this is what you're getting. Even today, yeah. if you're paying 2.5% yep. mutual fund yep. fees, yep. as long as you know that, yep. that's all that I care about. Exactly. And that's why, you know, when the regulators were doing all their research, a very large proportion of Canadians were saying, well, I don't pay anything for investment management. That's tough. Right? So, um, so anyway, I mean, we, there's, there's a, an interesting history there. But yes. what's also interesting is that very early on, before I left Woodgundy, I remember going to these seminars and there was one person that came from the U.S. talking about, you know, the future of financial advice mm. and all the rest of it. And they were talking about this whole fee-based model yeah. that was showing up in the U.S. and you'd be really forward-thinking if you hopped on the bandwagon and I looked at this and I thought well this makes a whole lot of sense <laughs> and so yeah you mean I can sell this fun front end and not charge a commission sounds great yeah so it when I left Woodgundy and I I moved my practice and started caring for clients that was the model I I, I right from the get-go mm -hmm. was front end zero and uh, the, 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 the compensation was fully disclosed to the client that there's a management fee, and of that, 1% is coming, or a half a percent is all of that. Yeah. So, and, and that was actually crazy, because essentially what I was doing was I was giving up 5%. To get one. To get one. And when you got the 5% in the past, you got 5%, and then you got a reduced trailer. Okay, what does that mean? So, for example, if... You have ABC fund, and let's just assume that the management fee, the MER, is the same for both funds. Okay. Okay, so say 2% just to keep it simple. Yeah. All right, if you bought it DSC, deferred sales charge, advisor gets a 5% commission. Mm -hmm. Of course, they share it with the house, but let's just keep let's it simple just, yeah. for now. So they get a 5% commission, and then of the 2%, they would get one half percent per year to service the account. Okay. 
Okay. Now, on the other hand, if you do it front-end zero, yeah. there's no commission, mm -hmm. but there's a 1% service fee. Added on to the two? No. Nope. No, just included. Oh, included. okay, instead of the half percent. Right. Okay. So after about uh, eight years yeah. or nine years, you're, as the advisor, you're equal. Mm. But not many advisors wanted to wait eight years to get the same level of compensation. Could you see the future of that this is all going to blow up? I didn't see the future. Mm. I just thought that it was wrong and that the fee-based model was right. And it, and it was what I could live with. And you could still make a living. It wasn't easy. Yeah. And you know what was crazy mm. was that the time, my timing was terrible. Because oh. it was 2000. Okay. So what, what small book of business I had built at that time yeah. got a little bit smaller with the downturn in the tech bubble. Yeah. And then trying to build a business at that time after the tech Oh, wreck, boy, yeah. Right? So not only was I not doing the DSC, mm. but it was just a slow, a slow... So, so it would have been it. tempting to, to yeah. you know. Well, but that's, that's why everyone's in these uh, sales commission-based jobs in the first place. Yeah. I mean, for some of the things that are being sold out there, you have to not think about the effect on the client. You have, like, yeah. financial products are, I think, they're very unique, right? Mm -hmm. And that it's not like you're selling somebody a T-shirt, right? <laughs> you're selling somebody something that's yeah. going to grow or not going to grow or whatever, I had a very sad conversation with an advisor recently, and it was in a social setting, so it was inappropriate for me to actually berate the person. Okay. Uh, and it's just not the mindset and the headspace I wanted to get in at that moment. Mm -hmm. But he was telling me about how he builds portfolios, and he was describing what he does and the fee he charges and all the rest of it. And I asked the question, well, that doesn't really actually sound optimal to me, you, you know, you're... I think you're missing out on X, Y, or Z. That would really enhance the performance of the portfolio. For your client. For the client, yeah. yeah. And he said, it's good enough. Ugh. It's good enough. And, and it's a lot less work for me. And, and, and oh. I, I, I almost... So, you know, I had a choice. And usually, I have to tell you, usually I have spent the last 20 years being very outspoken about all of this. Yes, okay. Right? Uh, and, and being independent allows me to do that without repercussion. Good. But sometimes, I just, like that day, I just didn't feel like getting into a fight. I think I'd sure. had a long week. I don't know what it was. Yeah. But normally, I would, my next question would be, and how do you live with yourself? Yeah. Right? Like, like if he was unaware. At the, at the end of your career, yeah. what are you going to, and when you have a child one day, this is awful, when you have a child one day, and, and they want to know what difference you made in your career or how you've helped people. Like, like what kind of answer are you yeah. going to have, you know? But, you know, I just wasn't in the mood. <laughs> but the, the answer is they don't think about these things, do they? They just they don't. don't think that way. Well, I, I don't... I think the reality is they, they don't care and it's not important. And if it's... And good enough for them is good enough. Yeah, I mean, I would pose right? the same question to... Somebody selling guns or working right. in a cigarette factory, I guess so. you know, or, or anything that right. I that is against my values. That's right. Right, and yeah. so. Oh, but you know what? It's okay because it makes it it makes us look so good <laughs> eventually. You know. Well, eventually, yeah. But you were sort of, I mean, almost. I'm not going to say pariah as the word that came to mind, but at the time, you were making them look bad. Uh, no. Were you? In the early days, no, because. 
because it really wasn't well understood, and in fact, consumers didn't like the idea of actually paying a fee and seeing the fee. Okay. Like they really didn't get it. It took a very long yeah. time. Yeah. I, I would ask, how hard was that? Or how, is it still hard? It's not hard now. Okay. It's what people are looking for now. Sure. Uh, to the point where we're we're actually at capacity in my core business right now. This is a percent. It's a percentage of assets under management. And it's also um, even we don't always manage money for mm -hmm, people. Yeah. We always just charge a fee for a, a plan. Fee. Yes. Right? So you know, I'm sure you've talked to lots of Absolutely. fee only planners. Yeah. So that's really how people come to us. To but do you also manage assets? Only if somebody's done some planning. And you have the ability to do that. We have. Yeah. And then only if they really need us. Okay. And if their account is large enough because we give a whole lot of value. Yeah. And so okay. it has to be a good fit both I ways. I like that you have that uh, standard. Yeah. Because if you're spending time managing somebody's assets, like if it's just $10,000... Yeah, I mean the way I the way I see it is that it's not just ma you're managing the money or overseeing the money. You've got liability associated with okay, that, yeah, yeah. but then w then they get ongoing financial planning as part of as that. part of it, yes. and that's very time consuming. Okay, so so and you wouldn't charge a flat fee in that case. No, yeah. because we've already done we've that. Already done that, yeah. And so now then the asset under management pays for the whole kind of full service. And this is the generally accepted a dual model today either you charge a flat for and then you don't sell products right or, that's yeah, the majority of field or planning, yeah. assets under management so like the robo advisors for example are doing um usually 0.5 percent yep. of assets under management uh, plus all the mers that's the way that they go and they only charge 0.5 because they're not necessarily going Full service. Right. I mean, they're comparing themselves actually, they're not to really. one. Yeah. Well, no. I mean, I, I actually don't think it's a very yeah, good deal that's a good point. for larger accounts. Yeah. Right. Yeah. If you have a very small account, try and get somebody to even deal with you. Yeah. That's another issue. That's a problem, systemic problem. Well, yeah, and there are companies that are working on that, of mm -hmm. course. And uh, yeah, I think just the more we focus on democratization of personal mm -hmm. finance, the the better it'll get. But yeah, it's good to know what you're getting, mm -hmm. right? I mean, if if somebody so. Yeah, let's keep going uh, in your trajectory. Um, mm -hmm. So you're on your own now. Mm -hmm. Is there a name of the company you want to share at this time? Or yeah, no? so so I moved the investment dealership. I put my license with Queensbury Strategies. Okay. That's a and that's where private. we are right now. We are sitting in the Queensbury okay. head office. And that's the last. That's the. This is like the third email yeah. address that I saw for you. Right. So, <laughs> so my this is the original. This is well, my family planning firm is caring for clients. Okay, so yeah. I set that up the same time I moved my investment practice to Queensbury. Okay, same time. So Queensbury, so Queensbury is kind of my back office for the investment gotcha. side. And caring for clients is my wholly owned fee-only planning company. Is you and just you, or was you just you at the time? It was me and my partner, uh, Clifford. Okay. He came from the fee-only planning world, so nice. we started it together. Okay. He ultimately became my husband okay. <laughs> and then um, passed away five years ago. So that was um, quite the journey. Um, but we started it, and now it's myself. I've got a team of seven, and so there's eight of us. Okay. And we take care of, I don't know, about 350 families. And, and, and one of the reasons why I started the next company, mm. which is Viviplan, the fintech, is because we just started having to turn away a lot of people. Yes. And also discovered, you know, there's just... Most people can't afford our fees or really shouldn't be paying that much for what they need. And so that's why you're turning them away? Is that the main reason? Both, both yeah, reasons. Both reasons. And so, yeah, like what, what would be a reasonable amount if someone came to you to be worth the value? 
Like, well, they is, have there, to, is there a minimum? There's no asset minimum no. because planning is just on a fee-for-service sure. basis. So our plans start at $4,500. Yeah, so right. you want to have some money to, to pay that. Well, you want to have at least income and you at have to have... At least $4,500. Yeah, well, <laughs> <laughs> and you also need to have... Uh, I, we need to see that you will get that money's worth. Mm, yeah, you okay. ha- your your, your planning needs are complex enough. I guess enough. there isn't a, isn't a specific calculation that you use to determine that. I was wondering if that was the case. Like, yeah, we, like for our $4,500 value, if they don't have at least this much, then it's not worth it. Look, they could have no savings. But if we see that by working with them, they, we could really springboard them Good point. financially. Yeah. Then we'll say, you know what? It'll be the best $4,500 you yeah. ever spent. Uh, so it's a bit of a judgment call from our standpoint. It has also to do with how motivated somebody is, right, to actually you know, take their decision-making in another direction. Uh, but, but in some cases, their planning needs are so simple that they'd be better off served by the new company because we do that same kind of comprehensive planning for $800. Mm-hmm. And that's obviously a whole lot less than 4500 And often what I say is, whoa, the best piece of financial advice I'm going to give you right from the get-go is don't pay us 4500 Go to Viviplan, and okay. you're going to get the same quality advice for 800 Yeah, so it's nice to have the option. And, and, uh, but it's still you. Right? No, it's not. No, it's not. No. It's your company. Mm-hmm. But and I feel like your essence is <laughs> in the, Oh yes, right? yes. But you're able, you've been able to program all of that into something. Is That's that right. It? It's a combination of technology and people. Yeah, okay. So we have planners yep. and um they are working with our technology mm-hmm. and they are communicating with clients by email and virtual meetings gotcha. and that kind of thing. And more and more technology gets introduced so that's how we're able to do it cost effectively. So you're able to you're able to create the foundation of this and mm-hmm. oversee it that's and you right. and but because it's not using your time which mm-hmm. is uh, at this point very, other than running very valuable. It and, and looking for investors other than yes. that yeah <laughs> yeah yeah the, but that's the overall the, yes. the running of the company mm-hmm. but the the operation of the company mm-hmm. you can sort of leave that and uh have it for they're just different team members different. right like on it, caring for clients there's myself and five other planners and at Viviplan, there's myself and two other planners. Mm-hmm. And that'll continue to grow as well. But it's the infrastructure, uh, the reduction of costs in yeah. that, that mm-hmm. makes you able to, That's right. to have, it, have yeah. it last. I mean, my vision is, is really that the majority of Canadians are able to get unbiased financial advice without having to deal with a product salesperson mm-hmm. that they can trust extremely cost-effectively and, in fact, get to a point where they're actually dynamically doing their own planning. Just the way we book our own trips and travel, that's the way planning's going to be. Now, every once in a while, you need to speak to a travel agent. Sure. Just like you'll need to speak yeah. to a financial planner. But I'm telling you, that's yeah, what that's, we're moving. That's, that's where we want it to see. That's how I'm setting up my coaching system. I just want to help people get their basics in order. Mm-hmm. And then once they're in order, then they can sort of monitor it themselves. And yeah, then maybe they, they use the Vivid Plan to create yeah. a more robust plan than yes. I would have done in a That's couple right. of minutes. Or right? it, exactly. Yeah. Or it could be uh, like a full-scale comprehensive planning update. Yeah. And then they can, you know, check in with you for, you know, the coaching, the counseling, whatever it, the case you know, may and, be. In, from my perspective, the where I add value is just having the discussions because mm-hmm. that's the first step, right? I mean, you, that's the first thing you will do with them, right? Mm-hmm. Before you get into all of the mechanics and the details and all of that stuff is, hey, let's talk, right? Mm-hmm. As we discussed at the beginning of, uh, of this interview, and it, it's so much about that. And so how much psychology did you take then? 
Well, I did one year in school. One year. And the last, I guess, 25 years in life. <laughs> That's right. I'm just wondering if the psychology... Well, I also, I can say the informal yeah. education I would have, I, I should be quite serious about this, is my, uh, my business partner and, and late husband was um, a teacher and a counselor by nature. Mm. And so I really learned at his side. Yeah, okay. So I did a lot of the technical planning work, okay. and he would do the coaching, counseling, and manage well, kind of conversations he would have with, with clients would blow me away. Well, you've been through several financial crises. Oh, um, yeah. Can you give an example of, like, like let's say 2008. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you had a client or two that came to you and said, what happened, and I... I lost all my money. Like, how does that conversation go? And how difficult is that to have? Or were you just ready? Well, I don't think you can ever be ready for something like that because Mm. that wasn't just an ordinary bear market. That was a financial crisis. Of course, yeah. So so what I can say is we were really focused at that time on our own clients. And Mm -hmm. I actually remember when the shit was hitting the fan, at least the first shoe was dropping because I was in at at an economics session at at Harvard's reunion because... My uh, my husband was a Harvard graduate, okay. and we were listening. And as this dean of economics was talking, mm. the news was starting to fly, <laughs> right? Wow, okay. And the markets were diving, and it was um, it was the Friday. It was the three days forward was going to be a uh, an election debate between McCain and Obama. And McCain was saying, "We we got to cancel the, uh, the the debate. This is a crisis of yeah. national uh, concern, and so we have to reschedule the debate." And Obama says, "We're debating." I remember that. <laughs> and so I'm thinking, I am in Boston. I need to get back to Toronto. Yeah. So get back to Toronto, and the first thing we did was email essentially all of our clients yeah. and say it's time to rebalance your portfolio. Okay, yeah. I, I mean, we, you, you know, the equities were down 25%. Not, not all equities, but the markets were down 25%. So I said, okay, we have an asset allocation. Yeah. We're light on equities right now. We should be rebalancing. That's the conversations that we were having. Okay, so that, like... Does, would that then take advantage of the, the rebuilding of the market? Is that why the rebalancing is to be done? Yeah, like, I mean, yeah. If, 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 if you like, if you want to own equities and they're mm-hmm. 25% cheaper, it might be a smart thing to do to mm-hmm. buy more. Yeah. And traditionally, that's historically, that's been the case. And if you're buying good quality investments, uh, then absolutely. Uh, and not all clients took us up on that okay. recommendation. And, you know, a percentage of them did. But then the second shoe dropped in the first quarter of 2009 and so Mm. it got even uglier which you don't know when it's going to stop no you never know where the bottom is in hindsight we do absolutely (laughs) so we we suggested rebalancing again in in early march of 2009 and what i'm just curious about people's reactions to this most people at that point then said nah i'm good (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> I think we'll just we'll just stay pat. Nobody sold because I don't know that people realize how much you know. I'm you might be a fan of Carl Richards. I don't. Yeah, know. Yeah, I love Carl and Richards. He yeah. says the the financial advisor planner is the person between us and stupid. Yeah. Right. And his training, which uh, I think you can take if you're a financial mm-hmm. a CFP in the states or maybe even Canadian. I don't mm-hmm. know. Is all about emotions and relationships, mm-hmm. isn't it? And, and people, I don't think they see, they see the numbers, they see the investments, if you're managing them, or they see the plan, but they don't realize how much uh, relationship management this is. Mm-hmm. And, I, and, you know, I'm proud that nobody sold, and I'm mm. proud that 
Some clients rebalanced, and I'm proud that some people just kept with their monthly automatic contributions. Sure. We didn't talk. I didn't mention those. I thought, oh, maybe they'll just forget they're investing on a monthly <laughs> basis. And I understand people's reticence because I remember the cover on Time magazine was the bread lines from the Depression saying, here we are again. Man, How yeah. does that not freak you out? Yeah. So there was a lot of communication happening at that time, which I think was essential. But now you, like, you have the benefit now of seeing the results of that rebalancing. Yeah. And... I'm assuming it was a positive move. For, yeah, I mean, especially those who the double. Oh my God, they recovered so quickly. It was crazy. Right? Yeah. Yeah, because like you were saying, it was something you were already invested in, which so you already thought about that that was the right place for you to be. So yeah. it's not like those were investments you that weren't good. And now you have the option to buy them at a huge discount. I know it because it just makes so much it sense. It does make sense. And the way I ask that question is just to have people listen to themselves. Mm. Is when they say, "Oh no, I think I'll just keep what I've got." Yeah. And so what I say is, rather than saying, okay, I'm being satisfied with that, I say, okay, you want to keep what you own. Why do you want to keep what you own? Yeah. And they say, well, I'm not going to sell it now. It's going to recover. Really? <laughs> is it going to recover a lot? Well, yeah, it's down 30%. Wow. <laughs> well, where else can we get a 30% return right now? Yeah. If you, if you want to own it because you're confident in its ability to recover, and I agree, Mr. and Mrs. Client, well, then why wouldn't we be buying more? Well, because you, you would have right. sat with them and determined the a specific allocation. Alloc yeah. asset allocation. I think people forget this, right? Mm -hmm. So let's say it was, what would be a good one 50 -50. right now? 50-50. 50-50, like bonds. Yeah, fixed income and, and equity. Fixed yeah. income, which is bonds, and yeah. equity, which is stocks, right? Yeah. So you already agreed that this mm -hmm. was their risk tolerance. And now yeah. the stocks are way down mm -hmm. and they're saying, I'm going to stick with this because why? It does nothing. Like there's, there's the uh, stupid for you. The emotions yeah. come into play. Yeah. Meanwhile, if you just, and as you know, because you've been through uh, all of these cycles, yeah. if you stick with the asset allocation, mm -hmm. it all kind of works out. Mm -hmm. right? It does. It's, it, it can be that simple. It can be, yes. Yeah, I yes. mean, it's also complicated. But, no, but it is. No, it is <laughs> that simple. If we, the, the thing that makes it complicated is the emotions, isn't it? It is, and I, and I explain over and over again, look, I, the industry tries, I think, the industry in general wants to look smarter than the clients, mm. so that there's a power imbalance, yeah. that the client will need you. Now, I have a different point of view. I think that the more knowledgeable and empowered a client is, the better decisions that they will make. And at the end of the day, then they will be in a stronger financial position. And isn't that what we are here to help them do? When we talk about investments as part of the financial planning process, it takes us a while to get to an actual analytics of their portfolio or recommendations. We'd spend a whole bunch of time with huge amount of education. And one of the things we start with is saying, you know, there are three basic components to investment success. Very simple. The first one is your chosen asset allocation on the premise that what you own is quality, okay? So we're not talking about speculation, crap, yeah. Bitcoin, all that crazy yeah. stuff. We're talking about quality investments. So the asset allocation you choose, number one. Number two, what you do during times of uh, market dislocation, okay. right? Which is when your 50-50 becomes 75-25. What, what you are do? you gonna do? All right, so whether or not you rebalance has a major impact. The third one, oh, cost. You know, cost keeping is a factor. Costs keeping low. costs low and yeah. making sure you're getting value for costs. So not, your returns aren't eroded by yeah, fees. Not in to Yeah, and, and, and I spend a bit of time on fees because people actually, 
I think this pendulum swung just a little bit, a bit too far on the okay. fee thing, okay. where where um, there's this automatic assumption being made that if your fees are lower by half a percent, you will automatically get that mm. half a percent <laughs> in better performance. No. And that's only true if you're comparing apples to apples. Yes. Same product. Okay. So, and generally speaking, that is not the case. So the asset allocation is actually going to have a, a bigger impact, frankly, than fees, so okay. long as you're not in high-cost segregated funds as compared to an ETF. I mean, okay. that's such a big chasm that that's, cost will have an impact there. So, um, but generally speaking, if you're getting value for, for fees, yes. that, right? are you getting you know, good risk-adjusted returns? If your fees include things like tax planning and financial planning and all of that, are you getting that? Yeah. Or are you paying for it but not getting it? Or are you getting it? Like, are you becoming wealthy and more secure as a result? And so, that, you know, so... So fees are important, but yeah. I, I would say not fees in an absolute sense. I would say fees in terms of value for fees paid. We, we can determine that from the financial planner fees, like in terms of the services we're getting. Yep. How do we determine value from, say, a robo-advisor's fee? How do we know? Like, uh, is there a way to figure that out? Like that 0.5% that we're paying. Oh, yeah. Well, I guess the way you would compare, okay, so this is how you yeah. justify it, because sometimes we'll talk to clients and say, well, should you be a do-it-yourself investor yeah. or use a robo-advisor? Sure. Because if you want a low-cost ETF portfolio, you can make one. So you can buy the Vanguard Balance Fund and be done with it. And why would you pay an extra half a percent? And fr- frankly, even the ETF portfolios within the robo-advisors are typically more than what a, a standalone balanced yeah. ETF would Maybe be. Maybe 0.8 right? uh, Exactly, max, yeah. versus 0.26 sure. or whatever it is. Yeah. So you say, but if you go the DIY route, these are the things you're going to have to do. Okay. Okay? You're going to have to open the account. You're going to have mm-hmm. to do this. Nobody can make a recommended portfolio. The portfolio is not going to be automatically rebalanced, although with an ETF, balanced ETF, yes, it's, it is. It's rebalanced in itself. It is. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Okay. So I yeah. have a hard time mm-hmm. finding where the value in the half Because rebalancing was... Uh, I would I would say it would be one of the major ones, it, it, but if you're having you're talking about an ETF that balances itself, mm-hmm. yeah. But what I can say is that some of the robo advisors are starting to put out some very good content, some mm. very good educational content, yeah. resources, and so on. It's true too. So, and I think that they'll continue to get better at that uh, as they uh, manage more money because there will be a demand because more balanced ETFs will come out. They're uh, going to eventually catch up to you. Yeah. In terms of the value you provide. No way. Impossible. <laughs> Impossible because... They'd have to start charging more. Yeah, they'd have to start caring more. Yeah. And, it, and the, the game for the low fees is volume. Mm-hmm. And as you said, about 350 families, is that... Mm-hmm. And that's probably... I'm just guessing you're at your max. We are for now, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you, uh, yeah, just as a good point, are you taking more clients? Right Not now? a caring for clients no, right now. We're on a bit of a hi- hiatus for about six to eight months. Okay. Uh, but certainly a Vivi plan. I mean, Vivi plan has the capacity to deal with hundreds of thousands. So Great. So where do people go to find out about it? Viviplan.com. Viviplan.com. It's V-I-V-I plan.com. And is there, are there any other websites, Caring for Clients? Should they go check that out? They can always see what we're up to at yeah. Caring for Clients. It's caringforclients.com. It's a good name. It tells, it tells uh, you wanted to tell people what you're what actually we, interested in. What we stand you for. Know? <laughs> yeah, that's good. So Vivaplan and, uh, yeah, but, uh, what did you say it started at in terms of uh, a fee for Vivaplan? It's very simple. It's an $800 flat fee mm-hmm. for a comprehensive Financial plan, get cash your, flow, estate, tax. Get your plan. Get your plan. And that, would that include 
that includes uh, telling them if they want to invest themselves or you yeah, know, like educating robo. all what all their options education. are. Mm -hmm. You're going to take care of them. We sure are. Yeah, yeah. We'll make sure they're in good hands one way or another, no matter what they have to do. Well, that's awesome. Thanks for inviting me here for this interview. This is uh, this is good because it's important to talk about the value of all of this stuff, and everyone's on autopilot. They listen to the banks, <laughs> and the banks are not there for us mm -hmm. maybe i'm learning now maybe the credit unions are more so <laughs> we'll, yeah it's a step uh, in the right direction for sure yeah, yeah. but uh, no this uh, is a good thing you're doing and uh, thanks for being one of the pioneers to step out of it, the dsts thank you. <laughs> thank you and it's a good thing that you're doing Bob. yeah well, you're thanks. doing some great work thanks so much If you like this episode, please subscribe to the podcasts on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, on Apple Podcasts especially, give me a review or a five-star rating. If you're already a subscriber, I'd love to get your feedback on this episode in my new Facebook group. To find the group, go to Facebook and search for The Personal Finance Show. Once you're approved, you'll be able to interact with me and previous guests of the show and other fans as well. And you can always reach out to me via email at bow at bowhumphreys.com. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Personal Finance Show. Next week, my guest will be Robert Geniak, host of the Money, Motivation, and More podcast and author of the Canadian bestseller, Rich is a State of Mind. <laughs>